I'm getting some really nice emails from you guys about my new book, Malroe and the Midnight Organ Fight, and I really appreciate the kind words. The book came out in mid-June, and it was, and it still is, a weird time to release it and to be talking about it. There's a global pandemic, there's political unrest, there's a long-overdue cultural conversation about race, and what else is there? Katy Perry's having a baby. (laughs) There's that. There's a lot going on. But the book is out. It's out there. And uh, if you feel like escaping into it to take a little break from the madness of the outside world, uh, hit up your indie bookseller for Malroe and the Midnight Organ Fight, and they'll get it to you. I know, Amazon Prime will drone it into your bedroom while you're sleeping and lay it gently on your desk, then take the dog for a walk and do all your laundry. But you know those non-drone-owning indie bookshops? Yeah, well, they need you. So find one near you and let them set you up. The book is a YA novel about two teen detectives trying to solve a series of murders one summer in San Francisco. Um, There's thrash metal, there's taekwondo, there's back alley surgeries... Uh, And there's a Russian thug swinging a cleaver. You know, summer stuff. (laughs) I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. I had a lover when I was younger. She bit my neck and then I turned into a monster. We used to sleep all day. We'd spend our nights away. Until we drained our veins, lost everything we had at stake That is the music of Local Nomad, which features my guest today on the program, Michael Desmond. Let me tell you a little bit about Local Nomad and Michael Desmond. I am abnormally fond of that precision, which creates movement. E.E. Cummings once wrote, Well, it's hard not to think that the famous poet would be abnormally fond of Local Nomad. With a satchel full of songs, all written with the kind of poetic precision that brings to mind the deft wordplay of everyone from Paul Simon to Elvis Costello, Local Nomad's new EP, Young Vampires, is a stirring blend of thoughtful indie rock laced with inventive percussion, sweeping instrumentation, and breezy choruses. In other words, this is an EP that definitely creates movement. Led by Michael Desmond, who fronted the now-defunct Long Island orchestral indie rock outfit Gabriel the Marine, Local Nomad's sound is meticulous and intricate. Desmond is a true pop craftsman, and his band's new EP may have the pop hooks of a band like, say, Squeeze, but it also has the deft sonic architecture of Vampire Weekend or The Police. But look, all this talk of pop music aside, my conversation with Michael focuses a lot on jazz and composition, and college. how we get there? You'll see. Enjoy my chat with Michael Desmond right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
doing well, man. I'm actually just getting over being sick right now. And uh, I'm feeling so much better. I was sick for like the past two weeks. I had like strep throat. It was crazy. Was there a part of you that was like, oh no? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I haven't been that sick since like I was like a kid, you know? So. And so um, were, were you, when you told your people around you that you were sick, were they, did they think, oh, he's got it. He's got the COVID. Yeah, definitely. And I was in like the same room for like a couple days, like I couldn't leave. And uh, I'm with my family. And uh, they were like, don't come out. And then like, I went to the ER because it got so bad. And they were like, oh, you have strep throat. And I tested negative for COVID. So it was just like a crazy two weeks. Um, but I'm so glad to be feeling better. And it's finally nice out. So that's good. Yeah, I mean the the thing about it is is that your brain starts to play tricks on you where you start going to like Google and saying that oh, what are the symptoms? A hundred percent, man. <laughs> That's the worst thing. Google is a dangerous thing. In yeah. your in terms, I was going to ask you what the sheltering in place has done to your creative process, but now I'm kind of interested to know when you were sick, was your brain actively? Um, what was it doing? Can you be in a creative space when you're sick or does everything get turned off? This is a really good question. Um, I try to do as much as I can. Well, I tried to when I was sick, but like I had a fever for like two weeks and that was really distracting. So, I mean, I've just been trying to listen to like a lot of podcasts and stuff and just listening to records and trying to do what I can mentally to like absorb some cool things like I've been listening to a lot of like Elvis Costello and the replacements and kind of just like seeing what I can take out of those records like Tim and um and uh, what's I don't know if you know the replacements and what's the what's the record after that uh, oh please to meet me yeah please to meet me um or no don't say a word is that is that the record uh don't that? tell a soul is after oh, please okay. to meet me yeah yeah, that record is amazing. And I've been listening to a lot of that and just like, uh, you know, trying to take in that and, and listen to the songwriting and just let it kind of sink into my own writing. And I, I like listening is so important for me as a songwriter because it's like the language, you know, and kind of interpreting it in and bringing that into my own writing. So it's kind of how I look at it. So I've been just doing a lot of listening, to be honest. Yeah, that's really good. Why specifically? The, I mean, you've chosen well, but why specifically the replacements in Elvis Costello at this juncture? Um, I don't know. I mean, it kind of started about a couple months ago uh, when I got really into the replacements and I just kind of dove deeper into the catalog because it really takes time to, you know, go through an artist catalog. Like you can't just, oh man, I'm just going to listen to this record. Sometimes it's just not the right time to do that. Right. So, um, now that I have the time, it's like I'm just diving into the deep cuts, you know. Yeah, there was back in the in when I was working in college radio in the '80s, there was CMJ used to be the sort of trade publication, and yeah. they used to have like you know they'd review all these records and they would say recommended tracks, and they were they reviewed Tim and they wrote recommended tracks, all of them. <laughs> The only time I've ever seen that done was like, hey, there isn't really, a, this is just a modern cloud. There's not a bad song on here. Yeah, I mean, it's a great record. Um, yeah, I mean, that and like Imperial Bedroom, Elvis Costello, like I kind of, I just wish that I grew up in the 80s 
like because I feel like you know it was because I'm 30 now so it's like growing up in New York and Long Island like we got the whole emo wave yeah which is such a different thing like depending on where you were geographically like in the you know early to mid 2000s I feel like it totally affects like your musical um influence and like your writing and everything else so it's really interesting that like I kind of came out of that scene like you know I used to play with Taking Back Sunday we played with Glassjaw, Jack's Mannequin and and bands like that so that's kind of the world I came from but I never like really you know was into that music a crazy amount so when you say you played with them do you mean that you that you toured with them or that you yeah I play I, I toured with them yeah I remember Glassjaw um for quite well actually and Taking Back Sunday were great too um what do you take from, you know, take an album like Tim, you hear a song like Left of the Dial, or you hear a song like Bastards of Young, or from my money, the greatest album opener of all time, Hold My Life, um, or the greatest album closer of all time, Here Comes a Regular. Um, and Yeah, amazing. I mean, it was funny. I was just listening to, because I just like, when I listen to records, I just kind of like, you know, go on a YouTube frenzy. Yeah. And. It's like Googling like interviews and stuff. And the singer of the Gaslight Anthem was talking about, you know, Tim and he was talking about Left of the Dial. And he's like, you know, for me, um, my, my, he was like, my mom was a folk singer and um, she like brought me up on like, you know, Bob Dylan and stuff. And it was like a language that I couldn't get because it was too advanced. But he's like, you know, the replacements kind of spoke from this place that was more of just like, your everyday guy just walking in to a bar and he's like when we were in uh you know he's like i i think uh westerberg said he's like when you know when we were in uh jersey because he wrote a song about uh alex chilton no yeah. no i'm sorry yeah that's a great song too um great song. but he was you know i think they, there's like some correlation between them and like tom waits too because i think they did a couple of tracks together yeah but um but yeah, like the singer of Gaslight Anthem was saying that um, he he like got influence from it because it was just like talking to like a friend at a bar, like somebody that you knew and it was easier to take in um, and, you know, a little bit just hit him in a different way. So, I mean, I started, I'm a writer and I started writing because of Paul Westerberg. I mean, I think yeah. the way he saw the world, the way he told a story um, there's nothing more wrenching in modern American music than Here Comes a Regular. I mean, it's just like the most, yeah, the, right? It's incredible. But, but the left of the dial thing, that's what I was going to say. I lost my train of thought for a second. But the left of the dial um, in that track, it's kind of like, it's easy to relate to, especially when you're in a band because you just lose touch with people. And you don't, you know, it's such an easy thing to do because, I mean, being in music, it's kind of like a 24-hour job. You know, even when you're not playing music or writing music, you're always thinking about it and you're always kind of trying to get better or write new songs and everything else. So, yeah. And, and you talk about what it was like to grow up in the 80s. And one thing it was like is there was a tribalism in terms of region, you know, so the replacements, Husker Du, Soul Asylum, those were all Minneapolis bands. And then, you know, you talk about like New York bands and then you talk about California bands. There were these pockets of regions that were, you know, Boston, that were, that had this cluster of bands. And I, I always felt that um, that was really helpful to have a fraternity 
of local musicians um, who were sort of experiencing the same things you were experiencing. Um, do you feel you have a, uh, a community of people that you um, can relate to on that level, being in a band, being a musician? That's a good question. I feel like it was like that, like growing up years ago, like from, you know, especially in New York and Long Island from about 2007 to about 2013. Um, and then like, I really think it's, I really feel it's more communal in the South, um, especially on the East Coast. Like, because what I've noticed is they're just like a whole, like Americana scene, a whole like roots music scene that really kind of has taken off over here. But in New York, it's kind of like, there's too much going on. There's so much, like we have a lot more fusion and like there's a whole jazz scene, which kind of like goes under the radar if you're not like familiar with it. And it's actually, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, but like, no, I, I think it's so weird now because I'm a solo artist, you know, and I play everything and I write everything and I have people that play with me, but it's just, I feel like music, I was just talking to my friend about this last night, but music has become more about the solo artist. And I think it's, it's kind of crazy because it's like, you know, that kind of happened in the early seventies too with Elton John and you yeah. know, there was like a whole outburst of like just solo artists, you know, and I feel like that's kind of happening again in a different way because of the way that we make music now. Yeah. I mean, somebody like, um, you know, whether it was Jackson Brown or Elton John or Elvis Costello, I yeah. mean, you, you're right. Or Graham Parker, you, you're right. Uh, and then in the eighties, it was all about the band. I mean, I think yeah. bands, you know, and I think you're right. We have returned to that kind of thing. Um, for you creatively, uh, when you listen to someone like Elvis Costello, like Imperial Bedroom is a very finely crafted pop album. And I think personally, one of his best. Um, yeah. The economy in that, in that, on that record is just incredible. And the pop mastery of it. So when you listen to the, you have the replacements over here, which is scruffy American post-punk kind of music. And then you have the polish of what Costello was doing, but it's this incredibly literate, um, melodic, uh, sort of well-produced, uh, record in terms of those two as your bookends for now that you've been currently listening to um, what are you pulling from the Costello side of things um I really like Elvis Costello um because I think he he is actually like a, a really good singer and I think like, especially you could hear that on the the Burt Backrack record which I was so surprised when I heard that because I was like wow like he really stepped it up yeah. Um, the lyricist, Elvis Costello's lyricism is incredible. And I think like, it's just taken like a different perspective, um, on writing, um, from like where he's coming from. And I know that he has actually like a lot of history in New York because I think at a time he lived at in the Chelsea hotel. Um, I believe like under Leonard Cohen and, and, uh, I had a violin player in my other band and his mom and dad, they lived there for a while. Um, below Leonard Cohen and Elvis Costello was actually their neighbor. Wow. So, yeah, crazy. I would think of excuses to go over there. Hey, do you guys have any uh, any bread I could borrow? Just, just to yeah, kind of... I know, right? Just for like a second. Yeah, right. Just for a glimpse. Hey, is this your newspaper? Just for a glimpse of them, <laughs> you know? Um, I get the sense, uh, looking over your career and where you're at right now, I, and tell me if I'm wrong, I get the sense that there's a, an evolution happening within you right 
now as we talk, that you're, you're creatively evolving and going somewhere new in your work. Do you feel um, that there's something exciting happening artistically for you that is a real shift? Yeah, and I think it's just a reflection of the time and what's going on because it's like I haven't had a second to actually like just be alone and sit down and, and take the time to just listen, you know? And, uh, but I'm always evolving because that's what we do, you know? You're always listening and always kind of trying to take different things in. And I mean, like, that's kind of just my goal as an artist and like, you know, where I came from, I went to school for, I went back to school uh, after doing a bunch of touring for vocal jazz, which was, you know, I realized that I don't want to play jazz because um, it's such like a commitment to just do that. Just to get some history about you, you had decided, you had started college or you, you didn't even start and you decided to play music. Yeah, I went to school for, I want to say like a year and a half. And then I dropped out when I was like, 21 to do a bunch of touring and then I had taken some online classes so it essentially like took me I guess 10 years to fully graduate which is yeah. fine yeah. but um, but yeah so like I went back to school uh, when I wasn't touring and I was working on a bunch of music um, working on my other EP which was like the 86 EP and and doing a lot of writing and recording and I went to school at uh, City College in Harlem and I uh, studied jazz there and then I did some more touring at the end of that, some more DIY stuff. And then um, now we're here and still making music and, you know, 2020. Yeah. When you, now, now when you leave school, mm -hmm. I, I'm, my day job is I am a professor. So I, I know I had these conversations with my, with my students when one of my students came to me and said, look, I've been here for three years and I want to drop out and, and uh, open my own bakery. I want to go to, you know, or whatever it was. I'm always very supportive of that because I feel like it is such a big decision to leave school. Was that one that you anguished over and how was that greeted by your family? Um, you know, I think it was hard. Like I also have a sister that plays music. So I think that I broke them in, you know, and it was a lot easier for, uh, for her. But, uh, you know, I, I'm really glad that I just kind of got it over with. I'm glad that I kind of, you know, I took my time and I, um, I went to, you know, a CUNY school because it was more affordable and like I stayed local. So it wasn't too crazy. Um, but I think it was just weird going back to school because I had a totally different mentality going back because I was like a little bit older and everyone was like 19. Yeah. And it's just like a different experience. And, and, you know, I think the one thing that I got out of school and, you know, as a professor, like, I don't know how you feel about, you know, college at this point, but it's kind of like, I figured out just how to learn more efficiently. I think that's the one thing that I got out of school, like everything else, like I just learned things that I wanted to learn, you know, right. like I kind of grabbed the things that I liked and I let it infiltrate, you know, my, mind and just kind of absorbed it like that and I, and I use school as more as like a tool to learn like I, I was like okay like you know I got decent like 80s or whatever but it was just kind of like it was more for me so I'm glad it's over <laughs> yeah no I know I mean yeah. here's how I feel about that I feel like that's a decision you couldn't have made uh, unless you're an older guy 
I mean, I think, or my feeling is I think that people go to college too young and I don't I, think they're they, ready. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. They're, you're too, I remember me, it's like, you're too young to make good decisions about um, how you're living your life. Um, mm -hmm. You are not really, um, you're, you're, I mean, all I could think about when I was in college was girls. I was just like, it's, I couldn't stop thinking about girls and making playlists for my radio show. That's all I was doing in college. I couldn't <laughs> concentrate on anything else. And when I, when I think about it, I've noticed my students who go back to school at in their late 20s or early 30s, they kick ass in a way they probably wouldn't have kicked ass when they were 19. Yeah, it's definitely true. So, I mean, it's funny you have that sort of split screen experience where like you did it. And I don't know if you compare and contrast, now I really sound like a professor, if you, can you know, compare and contrast your experience from being 19 to being an older guy, um, didn't didn't you feel that you were more receptive to knowledge when you were older? Yeah, and it was strange because I think I, I mean, maybe this is just my personality, but I definitely clashed with a lot more of my professors just because, like, I was like, hey, like, I'm coming here to, to learn, and, you know, you're not really teaching me. <laughs> right. Because, like, you know, what, what are we doing here? Like I had, you know, I won't say his name, but I had this teacher that like, he ended up writing me this whole like long essay about me being like a millennial because he was gone for half the semester and it was like my last class. And I was like, I'm not going to show up to class if you're not there because you're just not there. And like, we only have one assignment and you know, it was this, we had to like do an arrangement and he, he worked with a lot of, um, a lot of crazy artists like Carol King and, and Paul Simon. And, uh, he came back and I had a show at Highline Ballroom and it was like this pretty, pretty good show. And it was sold out. And I was like, listen, like, I'm not coming to class today because I have this show. I go to, I go to school for music and I'm like, you know, I got to just play the show. And he like freaked out and wrote this whole you know, crazy letter about, he's like, you know, it's not your fault. You know, I don't hold it against you. You're a millennial and you don't understand that, you know, there's a respect thing here. And uh, I was just like, oh, I, I, all my response was, all right, cool. I'll talk to you in person about it. Because like, what, what am I going to do? But I saved that email just because I like to read it every now and then because it's like, all right, like this guy's like a serious dude and like, it's just interesting that you know when you have the dynamic of a relationship changes um when you're a little bit older and you have teachers because you know there's like more of like an even playing field like i may not be this crazy you know jazz arranger who's doing things but like i i know what i'm doing and it's just in a different realm um so yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how he sort of categorized you as you know with a, with a rather broad brush Oh yeah. I mean, it, it was a long email. It wasn't just like, like he was, he was coming at me. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, now you, uh, your undergraduate degree is in music theory or is it in? No, it was just, I went to school for vocal jazz, which is very interesting. So a lot of what we did was like, we would sing, had to sing like Charlie Parker solos and like transcribe them. Um, we had these crazy like vocal arrangements uh, that we had to do and 
um, like a group of five or six people and just, you know, we did like theory classes, but primarily like was focused in, in vocal jazz. And like, it's so interesting because I came from, you know, playing in like, you know, shitty rock clubs and just experiencing music from a more like, just from, you know, personal experience, like going out there and playing with other bands and like learning from seeing a really cool band and be like, wow, like what did they do? And then, you know, you go into a classroom and it's just a different type of like learning. So I think it was good to just like combine both. And like, there was some, you know, things I had to just kind of get used to in, in the classroom environment. Cause I came from more of like a quote unquote, like street musician of like, like I took, you know, lessons and stuff, but, and I, and I always kind of, you know, studied jazz like independently, like of just, you know, got into those types of records like Chet Baker and Kurt Elling. Um, you know, uh, Mingus, uh, Monk and, and stuff like that. Like, so I always listened to them and like took things from them, um, in my own way. But then like going into study, it was just a completely different experience. And, you know, I think it's just a good thing for, for anybody to just kind of make themselves feel uncomfortable and kind of try to learn something different because it like balances out the other side of what you're doing. And I think anyone who hears your music, which I love, they may not hear what you're talking about as an influence. So, because the music you play is very different than the music you're talking about. Um, yeah. But yet, that's, that's a reaction from someone like me who's not a musician. But actually, I'm sure that it has a lot to do with what you do. Can you talk a little bit about how the cross-pollination um, works in your music? Yeah, totally. I mean, the whole reason why, like, I wanted to go back in school was just to have, to just understand more about harmony and more about, like, what I was doing. And I really like pop music. You know, I love, like, at the core, like, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And, um, you know, coming from that place and listening to Beatles songs, and they have so many cool changes um, and so many great songs. And it's just a whole, a whole world. And um, I think what I got from all this and how it comes into my music is that I just have more control over what I'm doing like harmonically. So like I've made the decision at least like right now to, you know, f uh, I don't want to say format, but like I'm making indie pop music, you know, and I just, I'm always concerned myself with just the songs and, you know, if, just treating the songs. And I think that like, the jazz influence comes in because I'm able to like, you know, play on my record and play all the instruments and just have like kind of uh, a different kind of, bring a different type of taste in it. Cause I really, I do like jazz and I, I do like like, you know, a lot of the American songbook and a lot of standards, but like it, it's hard. I think it, it's very interesting because there's not a lot of male vocal male vocalists that like are jazz singers and that people are like wow like did you hear so and so like there's i don't know why it is but there's more female vocalists like even i looked up to like when i was in high school like i those weren't like i only got into like frank listening to frank sinatra like later in life because i realized like wow this is like profound the phrasing is amazing and like his quality is amazing and throughout his career he his voice changed but like just was profound and yeah incredible. so 
sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there. About no, no, no. That's very interesting to me to, for you. To, and, and the women, who are the, some of the women you were talking about? Um, you know, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Carmen McRae, who's really cool, who does this like monk record where she like transcribes um, a lot of the stuff. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, those are just the main ones that I really dug into. Um, but like, as far as like male vocalists, you know, there's like Jose James, who's really cool, who's from New York. Um, Kurt Elling, who's like, I, I consider that he's kind of like the Gaston of vocal jazz. Like, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> cool stuff, but it's just like kind of nerdy. And, um, you know, I, I actually, uh, there was a singer that died in New York, uh, Mark Murphy, and he was kind of a legendary guy. And I got to see Kurt Elling like in front of like, hundred people which is crazy because you have these that's why new york is so cool too and i think actually billy joel has donated like a bunch of money to smalls jazz club which is incredible wow and I got to see like all of these crazy amazing jazz musicians in front of like i don't know a hundred people because you know kurt elling uh was mentored by mark murphy um so yeah it's cool stuff when you see a live show, whether it's jazz or mm -hmm. it's like a rock band, are you are you watching it as a fan, or is there this technician part of your brain that kicks in and starts pulling it apart and realizing like, what's happening up there? What's that person doing? I mean, it really just depends on the vibe. Um, like with rock music, I mean a lot of the bands that I really like, especially like in, I guess, more of the rock world right now, I'm trying to think. Um, like Spoon is, is amazing. Yeah. You know, Antigram, War on Drugs. And I think some things are just like vibes, but when I watch a band, um, you know, it, it, it really just depends on the setting. Um, like I think, I'm trying to think, like the last show that I, that I went to. Um, hmm. Like, for instance, like I saw like Bonnie Bear and like a show like that is just crazy. Like I have no idea what's going on. Like it seems like there's so much like tech, so many technical aspects of like sound that is being displayed, like whether they're running tracks or like they have crazy, you know, analog synths and crazy vocal effects. Um, but I guess it's that's a really hard question to ask because it's like when I watch rock bands it's it's more of like just a vibe yeah and you listen to it in a different way like i feel like you know to answer the question it's like when you when i listen to jazz and and more i guess like instrumental music like maybe i don't know if you heard of like brad maldo oh yeah for sure of course no, incredible like when i listen to him so it kind of like affects me in a couple ways because it's like very like I feel it emotionally and then I connect with it because his chord voicings are just incredible and it's inspiring because there's so much color in his playing and there's so much um, like emotion, you know, especially like he put out a record with Chris Steele. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's really cool. They do like an Elliott Smith cover. Yeah. Which I'm a huge fan of. So when I heard that, I was like, you know, that was incredible. And then, you know, even, I mean, that's a good artist. I mean, I know he's not really um, modern, you know, but Elliot Smith is incredible because, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got into all this and because I was listening to his songs and I was like finding the correlation between like 
wow, like a lot of this stuff he's doing is like really, really advanced, like harmonically. And the lyrics are just so ethereal. And so like you can, it's kind of up to your own interpretation. So I think like maybe that's like a middle ground of kind of an artist that is like on a service level, like it is a vibe. But when you really listen and really take it in, you're like, this is incredible because what he's done is, is, you know, combining things from the American songbook and writing songs that are like AABA and, and a little bit outside of pop music and dealing with maybe where the Beatles left off and, and took off from, you know, bands like Big Star and stuff. Well, I'm a big fan of. So, I mean, yeah, sorry if I, I'm just going on a tangent. No, no, this is what I want to hear. And yeah. I think that the, for me as a writer, I find when the, because there, there's a, a dichotomy between intellectualism and just fandom right totally and and so like when i read something and it's written on a level which is just staggeringly amazing mm -hmm. my, the technician side of my brain doesn't even switch on it, yeah. it doesn't even get activated um when the writing is a little bit rickety or right then you start noticing that a little bit more not that it diminishes your pleasure of it but you go oh that was sort of you become aware of, of what might be perceived as um, something tentative or, or stumbling, right? Which is okay. Um, but you, I think that the technician side of you gets activated when those kinds of things happen. When you get bowled over by it, then that part of your brain just stays completely <laughs> dormant till later. Yeah, well, that's, that's such an interesting thing because it's like, okay, like, so, so we're talking about like jazz and stuff. Like you have two female singers, Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. Like they're two completely different singers, but, and you know, Billie Holiday was quote unquote, like not the best singer, but people connect with it in the same way. And it's interesting to see, you know, it's like, you know, something that is so, um, I don't want to say barbaric, but it's so guttural and so emotional that people connect with it maybe in the same way as some, like, a, you know, talking about Billie Holiday versus Ella Fitzgerald, like people still love both of those singers and they're two different you know singers two different artists and i kind of look at music the same way or anything like you were saying about how like when the technician side of your brain kicks in um because it's like there's so there's so many simple songs that like for what's that chris isaac song like i don't want to fall in love like oh a wicked game the games um you know that's such a simple song and it's like it's in it's so good you know and i could sit down and just like like i love picking apart songs like that you know um and just thinking about like why is this so good <laughs> yeah because there's a reason why the songs we love are so good and you know i used to like be so um afraid of going down the path because i was like i don't want to you know touch it and like think about it in such right. a you know, cerebral way and be like, oh my God. But you can like, just shut it off. You can be, you could look at it that way and then you could just listen to it and enjoy it. Like, you know, In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel is one of those songs for me because I heard this live version of that song and it's like, I made like a running playlist and I've, I've talked about this before. Um, and I only end up listening to that version of the song because it's like 12 minutes long. And it's just incredible. And um, 
I could just listen to that song all day and like, you know, picking that apart is just, it's crazy. It's just, it's just such a good song. I think it's like one of the best songs ever written. So. And you're talking about that sort of ultra percussive live circle version he does where they, it's like with uh, Yusu and and, Endor or whatever. Like it's like. Yeah, Yusu and Do, yeah. Yeah, right, right. And it's just this, I, I saw that live in Oakland and it was just like, holy fuck man i mean it yeah. just knocked me out you know yeah um, inc- um I, I agree with you yeah i i played with this i played this show in like maryland in like 2018 at the milk boy art house i think that's in maryland um really cool venue um but i spoke to one of the sound guys and he's like and we were just talking about music and i brought up that song and he's like yeah like you know i have played with Yusum and do, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he's like, yeah, it's crazy. And we were just talking about that record. And I don't, I don't know who the drummer is on that record, but on that specific song, but it's insane. It's ridiculous. And I didn't know this, but I was going to interview Paula Cole. I don't know if you know who Paula Cole is. I, um, is she, she that, like, where yeah, have all the cowboys gone? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know that she was in that band. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that, but she, I'm like, he had a crack band. I mean, there was there was nobody on that stage who who was yeah. was was the bass player from King Crimson. Yeah, I think so. The bald yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a I can't remember his name, and I'm embarrassed. I can't remember it, but oh, um, okay. he's a he's a legend, and he's just oh, yeah. incredible. You know, just incredible. But um, I know what you mean, and there is something to be said about how uh, you know, like an album or a song will endure. And you sort of, um, you know, like, I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't really even think that all of Shakespeare's stuff really stands up. Um, I don't think all of Dylan's stuff stands up. I don't think anybody's stuff all stands up. But no. a lot of it does, you know? Yeah, but it's really interesting. I mean, now that we're talking about this in, like, you know, have you ever heard of Rimbaud before? Uh, the poet? Yeah. Yeah, Rimbaud, sure. Because he did a lot of writing in his early 20s you know that was his whole thing like i have this book that someone gave me that compares him to jim morrison and how yeah they lived like these parallel lives and i think it's interesting for a lot of artists you know especially like dylan is a perfect example of someone like that because early on in dylan's career you know he was like he just people like trash dylan they're like oh what a bad singer but early on like you know the boots of spanish leather and that kind of material like he sounded incredible and he was cutting a whole record in a day, you know, right, right. with Bob Dylan, what a lot of people don't realize is like, he was, you know, such a natural talent that I think that like, he didn't know, really know what he was doing vocally, but I think that, and he just kind of went for it. And I think that he just became so much of a songwriter that he's like, it just became a secondary thing. And it drifted. But if you listen to the earlier Bob Dylan records, I mean, he sounds great. You know? Yeah, a completely distinct. Yeah. Um, really my, good. I was talking to a friend of mine who played guitar for Echo and the Bunnymen on tour for a couple of years, and he was he was telling me that Kurt Cobain technically is a terrible singer, um, but he also considers him to be one of the greatest singers uh, of all time at the same time. Right. And he's like you know, there's nothing, you feel everything when that guy opens his mouth. He's like his breathing technique, his, it was all coming from the throat. It's all wrong. And he said, if he was still alive, he probably wouldn't even have a voice right now if he was still doing that. 
Um, but yeah. yet he considers him to be one of the all-time greatest singers. I mean, I, I agree with that. He has his own thing, you know, he has his own sound and he, he knows how to sing a lyric. Right. You know, and, and it's just, right. that's, that's a thing in itself, like that we, I think, you know, myself, I, I forget that, you know, and it's like, it just comes down to like, what are you trying to say to somebody? You know? So yeah. What are you trying to say? He's really good at that, you know? And that's kind of even the correlation between jazz and, you know, folk music. It's folk music is the definition of folk music is just, it means music for the people. That's, that's what it is. So when you go back to jazz, I mean, a lot of jazz singers, it's about talking to people on like a, a speech level and how you're communicating to people. And I think that's really interesting. So was the year you thought that everything was gonna change? But everyone's got their own problems. It's like the world was spinning faster than it was before. But I don't know how to solve it.
you had mentioned that your sister is a musician. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys collaborate at all? We have. Um, we collaborated on a song for this movie pageant material, um, which stars this kid, Desmond, um, who, and it was like in the uh, Atlanta Film Festival. And we actually did a track together. She has a band called Babe Club, and they're from South Carolina. And now talking about music scenes, like what's going on there? I mean, you know, minus the quarantine. I mean, I've, I've always felt like there's been a bigger community of like bands and things going on down south than there is in New York because I just feel like, um, you know, maybe in the 90s and like the late 80s, like clubs like The Bitter End were just like a different thing. Yeah. You know, and they, they're not the same. They're, they they put on, I mean, and that's a great club. I'm not trying to, you know, bash that because it's got like a lot of history behind it. But a lot of these New York clubs, I feel like they were, they're kind of more concerned about, you know, paying the bills than kind of building a, a scene necessarily. Because I've, I've noticed it a lot in New York that it, a lot of the thing, even the Rockwoods and all these venues, like as an artist now, I think, uh, you know, and I, whoever's listening to this too, I think it's like really important to play the right shows. Mm -hmm. Get involved, especially in New York, because it's such a thing that like, it really does matter like what venues you're playing and what circuit you're into, because you can get lost because we have jazz, we have fusion. We have like this influx of these folk artists. We have Brooklyn, we have, you know, hip hop and we have like lo-fi now music and right. And, you know, I see that a lot in New Jersey, like I, cause I, I work with somebody in, in Jersey and like, there's like a really cool like influx of like hip hop stuff going on there. And, um, you know, I, it's, I feel like it's a more focused thing, um, than, than New York necessarily because, uh, it, it, New York, like there's just too much going on all the time. So it's really hard to shift through and back to, you know, my sister living in South Carolina like she, um, you know, I, I went down there and it's just, it's super inspiring to be in that realm. It's, it's almost like a smaller Nashville because you walk down the street and it's just way more communal, like band wise. It almost reminds me of New York in like 2008, you know, to 2013 or something. Right. So yeah there's something it's funny no one's ever said that before on the show about and, and and again sometimes in the audience we have people listening who are young musicians who are getting started and to hear you say play the right shows is a really good piece of advice um i mean like you know for there's different points people have you know people are at different points in their careers and they're trying to do different things obviously but like from what i've seen it's like you know, you got to bring people out to shows. So you don't want to be playing like, you know, four times a week. Like it's just, we're living in a different world now, basically yeah. the internet. So it just changes the way we, we take in music and it changes the way we watch music because um, we have the internet and I'm a really big fan of, uh, it's actually really funny because my first uh, manager, we work with this management company called Strong Management and they manage like Kill Switch Engage and stuff. And so um, we were kind of, my old, old band was not like that at all, but you know, I, I hung around those guys and um, you know, one of their friends, Doc Coyle has a really great podcast called The X-Man. And he had this whole, you know, talk about how 
mute the way we make music is totally different because bands are you know learning um they're making their songs in a computer right not going you know and i'm guilty of that too like i do everything with my producer nick and and i'm playing the songs but it's just me but it's definitely a different process than you know as i said earlier than having this band and it's more about the solo artist um so I think that really changes music too, because it becomes more of this thing that is like, it's at the, you know, the touch of our fingertips and it, it changes and especially Spotify too. Like it changes the way, like a lot of people even structure their music, which is a really interesting concept too, because, you know, this quote unquote algorithm is taking over. Yeah. And it's interesting to me how, when you construct music in that kind of environment and then you bring it out into the world and right now that bringing it out into the world part of the live component which we're talking about a great deal um it has been removed for the time being um and even here in california the the state schools have declared as of yesterday no in-person instruction for the fall um when you think about how you make your money when you think about how you bring your music to people, um, that component right now being compromised or being a question mark, and obviously you're not a you're not a, a you know a clairvoyant or a doctor, but how do you visualize um, a return to the stage? And when you do imagine that return, um, how do you think about self-preservation? Because I imagine you're the kind of guy that shows up at a meet and greet. I imagine afterwards you're at the mer- you hang out with your fans, maybe you merch table, maybe you do whatever. Um, how have you let your mind even go to that place? And how do you see it? So you're saying like when we return, like what are things going to be like? Yeah, what are things going to be like? And how will your perspective, because a lot of times people are saying, um, oh, I don't know if fans will want to go back so readily. And my first thought is, what about the artist? I'm not sure the artist is going to feel comfortable. Well, I've always been a, been afraid of this this situation of art being, I mean, it was already headed that way before this, of just art becoming this thing that is kind of cheapened because people, it, it, it you know, obviously like music isn't something like food that we need, but it still is something that feeds people. Yeah, these people in a different way. And I think we're heading to this, um, we're heading into this place, even before we, we were headed into this place before the quarantine, that art was becoming this thing that, you know, songwriting became more linear, harmonic, mm-hmm. like it, it, and we see it a lot on pop radio and some of the, you know, pop, right. I love pop music. I love, I love Rihanna. I love Beyonce. I love Ed Sheeran. And but we're looking at songwriting that's more based on it, like, you know, it's not so much three-dimensional as far as like we're looking at harmony. And I think people aren't listening to music this in the same way as they used to. And that's just yeah. a fact. And now we're looking at, I always felt as an artist, because I've, you know, been coming up the past 10 years and I've had, you know, I've done really cool things. And it's it's difficult as someone who's completely independent. And I I look at it at it this way. Um as an independent artist who, you know, is trying to come up, there's, there's no like middle ground, you know, there's the run of the mill, like local artists, and there's people in the middle, and then there's, you know, like the superstars, and it's kind of like broadening, like making that gap a lot wider. 
because we're the scariest part about this is like I read in, in the UK like 500 venues closed. Like I don't know if that's I just read that. Yeah, you know, and it, it's crazy. Like I've been trying to keep up to date. You know, um, I don't I don't know what's gonna happen, but I kind of have a feeling that music is not gonna die. You know, it, it, it's just not. It's it's going to evolve and it's going to become a different thing. I I, I think um, you know I, I live streaming is a cool thing, but what I think is three things that I have theories that I have is I think that some places in the world are going to clear up sooner than others. And I think that we're going to see maybe a lot of different type of touring. Okay. See maybe touring in isolated areas, touring in places that maybe are more based like a drive-in movie theater where people are in cars or venues are one third capacity at some point. The other thing I think, which I don't know if anyone has thought about this, but I think like most of the problem with streaming concerts, you know, is that pe people have bad internet, myself included, and are not necessarily equipped to make this production value that is going to keep people's attention. So I think that like someone somewhere is going to come up with something like a streaming venue where you can stream maybe in a specific place. Um, and the third thing is, I, I think that, um, you know, may, eventually, I think it's going to go back to normal, normal for whatever that means, like, of keeping the, you know, the social distancing in a venue, but I think it's going to be a long time. Um, I think that as artists, you know, the only thing that we can do right now is release music. Um, because if we're not, you know, I... Cause I thought about it. Cause like, you know, I have a, a ton of songs and I've been writing a lot and it's, I, I, I my manager was like, do you want to put out a full length and, and when do we want to do this? And I'm kind of thinking that I just need to like put out a song every month. And that's kind of the, the plan, you know, we're releasing an EP, a local nomad EP. And, um, you know, I, I think that's the only thing that we could do. And I think, um, you know, it's crazy because at first, like, you know, a lot of people are talking like, you know, like Spotify is, is the devil. And in, in a lot of ways, it, it is not great for the artists, but, you know, it, it, I think it's doing better than people anticipated. You know, Sirius XM and Spotify are, are doing a little bit better. And I think like, ah, what's, uh, I'm trying to, I listen to this other podcast. Uh, it, it, there's, a, there's an episode with David, David uh, Israelite, who's a music lawyer. And I think the bill was passed to increase streaming revenue to artists through Spotify and Amazon Music. Good, good. But I mean, this happened a little while ago. But uh, and and if you want to, I don't know if you heard of Ross Golan. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Like that podcast is is incredible. And they had an episode with David Israelite, and the bill has passed. But Spotify and Amazon have been like you know countersuing, and I think that they're kind of like at a standstill with that. So. <laughs> I think eventually like that, uh, once again, like I have no idea, but from what I read and from what my understanding is, I think, you know, streaming is not going to go away. I think it's just going to, you know, something is going to change where maybe there's an increase in, in what artists get paid. And, but I believe that Spotify just became profitable, you know, like, like maybe last year, 
until then, I don't think, I think that's true. Yeah. So like, I don't think that they, they were really profitable. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, on the, on the flip side, I, I know, you know, I think it's like 1 million plays is like 7k. That's what it equals out to, which is crazy. But I think it also allows like a new world for like people to discover artists too. Um, so I don't think it's the worst thing, but I think that it could be improved. And I think that's going to be really important to, you know, artists right now and figuring that out and figuring out a way that we could, you know, give artists money and, and I can make money and we could, well, yeah. we, we could get through this. Um, so that's what I think is the most important thing. Cause I don't think music is, is going to go away. Um, not until like, you know, we're at this uh, black mirror point in, in society, like yeah. way in the future, you know, but no music is going nowhere. And, but I wonder sometimes if artists aren't going to go anywhere geographically, in other words, you may not, you know, that's sort of the whole idea of get in the car and tour um, or get in the bus, get in the van. I don't know what that's going to look like. Well, to be honest, you know, to comment on that, like, I even think that's been, that has been changing because the whole DIY thing, I mean, I did, I did about like 50 dates in 2018 of like playing a college kid's basement and it's fun, you know, it's, it's really fun. And you really, I love those shows. I mean, you connect with people. That's the coolest way to connect with people. Cause you get to meet everyone. There's no divide between like, you know, the artist and, and the audience. And it's just a lot of fun. Um, but those are going away more because of, the internet and we have we could watch a video of someone playing online right um, and it was headed that way you know i had this discussion because i'm 30 now so it, it's much different to tour at this point because you're like is this worth it is this worth it to drive to massachusetts to play in front of 70 kids you don't always know if 70 kids are going to be there i mean it's back in the day i feel like it was it, it was different when you're younger you don't have uh, you don't have to think about that because no about bills you're not you're not worried you can just do it and i think at a certain point being a guy that's 30 and being like what's more important like feeding my artistry and focusing on writing songs in a world that is just based on content or going out there and playing for 30 kids and i don't i don't know what the answer is i think it's a little bit of both but i think that world has been dying now for for some years um and, you know, I talk about this with my sister, just about like DIY touring and, and is it worth it? And, and sometimes it is. And I think like at a certain point, it's just about like, what type of band are you? What are you trying to do? And who is your audience? You know, because that, those are the questions. And, you know, my audience for the music I'm making at this moment in time might not be that DIY thing, but, and that's okay. But like, I, 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 you know, I think it's just a balance of, of that. And I think this whole thing might actually kill that DIY thing, unfortunately. For, it could. And there's uh, also the idea that you now in your, in your early, early part of your thirties, um, you know, on the, uh, just freshly 30, um, there will come a point where, because nothing makes you feel older than college kids. And if you are, you know, on a rainy night, in November, um, going to play a show in, to a bunch of college kids, and there's 25, 30, 40, 50, 60 people there, and you're 43, yeah. 
you might not want to do that anymore. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's cool though. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> listen, yeah. You know, yeah. It, I think it just, it really depends. Yeah. You're totally right. But it just depends what you're happy with doing, you know? That's true. Um, yeah. It, and, it, and it just depends if, if you could be happy doing that. That's great. I mean, some people love that, but I understand what you're saying. The rain thing is that that's a, that's such a real situation. Yeah, no, I know. I've seen, I've seen the looks on musicians faces and I'm like, ah, oh, because it's like, they're not Bon Jovi. Someone's not doing that for them. They're doing it themselves. Yeah. Um, even in the most bare bones Spartan setup, it's still a setup. Um, and it's still equipment you still have to carry in and, and out. Um, you sound like you're from a family that was very supportive of, of artistic endeavors, your sister and you both playing music. You sound like yeah. you your parents. Yeah, my, like again, like I definitely broke my parents in um, <laughs> years. Yeah. Um, but so like my mom and dad, they're not musicians, but our grandfather was um, an entertainer in the USO shows. He was an impersonator and a singer. And he, you know, was doing that like professionally for maybe like 25 years. Wow. So, you know, I think my mom kind of saw that growing up and how, you know, eventually he settled and he was kind of miserable because he ended up like working at a bank and, but he still had this thing. Like he was still lived his life. Like he was an entertainer. And I think that like, she kind of saw that in my sister and I, and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, let us, you know, she gave us music lessons when we were growing up and stuff. And, you know, I don't think she, they, they didn't like really push us. It was something that we enjoyed and they gave us the opportunity to embrace that side of us, which I'm super grateful for. And uh, I think it's just, it's just a great thing. Like music is just a really good thing. It's good for your mind. It's good for your soul. It's good to just, it, it makes you understand different things. Cause it's kind of the gate for me, music was just kind of a gateway into discovering like different parts of history and different things of like lineage of just like tracing the influence as we're, you know, as we spoke about before, even about like, you know, Elliot Smith and Big Stone yeah. and Chet Baker. And like, you know, those artists are all related and it's really fascinating because there's so much history behind all that culturally and artistically that like influences people now. And I just think that's really cool. And it's, and it's just good stuff. So. It's interesting to hear about your, your grandfather who, I mean, such a performative life to mm -hmm. then be working at a bank. I would imagine that that would be the emotional whiplash on that. Um, so you're saying he still lived like a performer. You mean he was a very entertaining guy. Yeah, I mean, he st I, I didn't, uh, you know, he died a year before I was born, but from what my mom says and from videos that I've seen that, yeah, like he, he still did impressions and he was like one of the funniest people. So I think like, you know, I, I mean, I kind of take that with me too, because it's just like, you know, even like what is making it, you know, making it, I guess is, is making a living. And right. I guess it's, um, you know, it's still something that I'll do you know it's something that's in me so it's like you know you just got to do it yeah and you naturally have chosen a performative life as well it's like in your dna um yeah. but for you um you know we're at an interesting place in the world right now you're putting out this you know i, I love your new stuff i love all your stuff i listen to gabriel a lot too as well but i mean i'm, I'm a big fan of your work and um i love watching you um 
change and evolve. Like we talked about at, at the beginning of the program, it's really exciting to me that you're not, you remind me of Elvis Costello in the sense that you're not content to do the same thing twice. Um, but yeah. you seem like an artist who is unafraid to keep moving um, and challenge yourself. And, and I think that's so important for, for an artist to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do that. Um, I think I just, I kind of just set a goal for myself because it's like my whole, my whole thing is just try and get deeper into who I am and what I'm trying to do artistically. And just to feed that and always, I'm always trying to feed the song and what's ever best for the song. And I think like part of what I've done, especially in, you know, these new songs, which are, you know, at, at this point, they're almost like two years old because I, I've been sitting on a lot of material. But um, a big thing with them is that like, there's a lot of records that I hear of like a lot of really cool indie bands. But then like, I, I don't, um, like, especially, I think Big Star is a great example. And maybe this isn't, you know, why, maybe there's a reason why, like, they didn't blow up is because they're, you know, they wrote really catchy songs and really cool licks. But there's something about the structure of their music and the way that it that it hit an audience that wasn't necessary, like, it didn't connect. It, it missed. And I think, like, over time, what I've kind of, like, come to realize is that just like I love pop music and I love indie music and I love like you know really cool like 80s bands and kind of combining those influences and like not being afraid to write a pop song because I mean a lot of bands that are coming out now um they're really pop bands but they're you know the way that they play their chords and the way that they maybe make an arrangement makes it a little bit more of like someone be like, wow, that's weird or that's different, you know, but it's really at the core, it's a pop song. And I think like, I've kind of just accepted that. And, you know, I think it, it's like a musical, I don't know if it's a musical maturity thing, but it's like, I really like pop music and I'm not like really afraid to say that anymore. Cause I used to be as a kid, I used to be like in my early teens and, and be like, oh, well that's, you know, a pop song. But I look at, you know, the Katy Perry song and I was like, that is like teenage dream or something like that. I was like, that's crazy. Like if, you know, um, if Kate Bush sang that song, that would be a really cool song. Reg I agree with you. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of how I look at pop music now. It's like, I kind of like think about a song like Sean Mendez or something. Yeah. And I was like, what if friggin' Neil Young sang that? Like, what would that be? And it would be like, it's still a great song. I mean, even Nickelback, like, this is how you remind me. Again, like, what if Neil Young sang that? People wouldn't be like, Nickelback sucks, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. people would be like, that's, that's just a great song. And that's kind of how I, you know, kind of think about music now and, and I let it infiltrate me, so. Yeah, and it's interesting to me to hear you say that. And I, and I agree with you um, because there's some very finely crafted uh, material out there, and though it is packaged for maybe a younger um, audience, or it's slicker than maybe you would prefer, you can still sure. strip it back and hear the core of it. Um, I look at Big Star, and I think like, well, who was like Big Star that got <clears throat> that got famous? Well, Cheap Trick. Um, mm -hmm. Cheap Trick. Like I listened to Surrender the other day for the nine millionth time, and it still sounds as fresh and vital as ever. And I hear September Girls still sounds as fresh and vital as ever. 
what's the difference? Not much. Um, but there's something a little more immediate about Cheap Trick where you could explain, I don't know how to explain why they connected and, and Big Star didn't. Um, but I think, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I think of, let me, I'm trying to think of the song right now, but like I, I, I think about this stuff a lot because I really do love Big Star. I'm just gonna look up the song for a second. But I think what it, what it came down to, and and what I mean by like I don't I don't know what the radio standards were back then, and like yeah. I don't know how people thought about music as far as like it being commercial or like what's not commercial. But I think like the Ballad of El Goodo is like a good example of that structurally because of like you know parts of like the arrangement that they chose to go off. I mean even like the you know what's the, the that '70s show theme song. Right, the, uh, on the street. Yeah, like that song sounds a little bit different when you listen to it on the record. Like, that's not even one of my favorite songs. Um, but like, there's, you know, I mean, 13 obviously is amazing. Um, but When My Baby's Besides Me. Um, and then even, what's what's the guy? Uh, Chris Bell has uh, I Am The Cosmos. That's a crazy song. Yeah, great album. Really cool record too. But I think like that's my consensus with, you know, the Big Star songs um, is that there's just like some things in the songs that I think they, they compared to the artists at the time, they went into like a little bit of a different direction that influences music now because I think people weren't ready for that. You know, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And I think now, especially like in indie music and, you know, in that realm of rock, whatever you want to consider it, um, people have figured that out now and like how to do it. And I think, you know, um, even Elliot Smith was an extension of that. And I always think that Elliot Smith was an extension of the Beatles because he kind of did what the Beatles did, but he really like, there's a lot of like really cool jazz changes in it. And there's like a lot of really cool, um, harmony and just like depth to what he was doing and i've heard that he's really he's a really big zz top fan which i, wow. I was so surprised at. interesting i find yeah. sometimes that when something sounds simple it's very deceptive i mean if you read hemingway i mean like my students love reading hemingway because on the page it's like oh this looks like a, i can read it really fast it looks easy and it's like yeah it does look that way but try to write like that it's so simple um, the sound yeah. is very clean and short, and um, but it's not simple. Elliot Smith, um, I agree with you. It's it it looks so simple, but it's not. It's very complex. It's very um, technically very unusual. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think about this stuff too, and I, I think like um, you know, in terms of like what you do, and in your own art, and in your own lens that you see the world through. Do you feel now? Um, at 30 years old, do you feel that your sensibility has refined itself to the point where you know yourself better as an artist that you, than you did 10 years ago? Has, has, is that one of the measurable changes? I think so. I think I know myself a lot better of like where I want to go, you know, because there's the destination is always moving. And I think that's only healthy to, to, you know, like you said, just change over time. Um, and I think I, I, I just come to terms with more of myself. And I think for the first time 
that's definitely come out in this EP specifically because I was able to embrace more of like a comedic aspect to a lot of things, which maybe people won't get that right away. But I think just a lot of this EP is just me being extremely narrative and um, more based in like, you know, the way I would talk to somebody or, you know, what I was really going through or what I was really feeling. And I think like before that I wrote from like a different place that was more uh, ethereal. And I, I was, you know, I still am influenced by, you know, Big Star and, and Elliot Smith in a different way. And I have certain songs that pay more tribute to that style in, in a pop way. But, you know, for these songs, I just kind of like let myself be open to the possibility of being like, hey, like this is who I am right now. And I don't want to edit myself from staying away from this because it's like, I went to places that were a little bit uncomfortable for me. And I feel like I grew from that and it allowed me to write really cool songs because it was the unexpected, you know? Right. And, and I sense a real narrative shift uh, on this album. It feels, I mean, it feels weird to say like, this is the most mature uh, songwriting, but I mean, it's you at your oldest, right? I mean, it's, yeah, so it captures you in time. So that would be accurate. Um, but I love what you just said. Um, and I'm going to title the episode, the destination, the destination is always moving. I love that, that phrase. Um, because it's true. And I think it should be, um, yeah. you, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was so frustrated when a band I loved wouldn't make the same record 10 times in a row. But of course, a 15 year old would be frustrated by that. But now as, you know, as a 49 year old, I go, oh, well, I love that, that this band, I mean, for me, like, that's a problem for Weezer. Like I like Weezer, but Weezer's made the same record, you know, 10 times in a row. Um, but that, but that's kind of like, I mean, that's like tales all this time now. I feel like there's so many times where I hear like a really cool band and, and I think that's just like the norm now, like people records that just sound the same and that's great. Like I, I really enjoy that. Um, but I think it's just boring and, and that's fine. And that's kind of why I've made the choice to like, take that influence of the stuff that I love and just be like, Hey, like I'm going to write songs that are in the same vein, but they just don't all sound the same. Cause that is for me, that, that is just a little bit boring. Yeah. And, and, and I dig it when other bands do it. Like I, I really like the war on drugs. Like I think they're a fantastic band and like, what they offer is such a vibe and the songs are just really great and ethereal and it's amazing. Um, but I don't know if I could personally just do that for a whole group of songs, you know? Take a band like Vampire Weekend. I think they're, they're changing every time. I mean, you, they're still the same band, but sonically they're taking chances. And ex I think for them, they're expanding on what they do rather than yeah. parting from it. And that's also an option. Um, but at least yeah. the, the sort of the panorama is widening um, yeah. where you, you know where you are. Some bands in the 80s would give you a super left turn and you were like, what the hell just happened? Um, yeah, The Cure was kind of like that, you know? Who was? The Cure. I mean, the Cure, like the Cure was cool like that because, you know, a lot of people don't realize like how heavy some of their songs are. And like, it's it's pretty wild. You know, I saw them, actually went to see them by myself because like, I just found out that they were playing MSG and I was just like, screw it. Like, I'm just going to go. 
because like who you know who knows how much longer those guys will be around you just, yeah you don't know so yeah yeah they're one of those bands yeah i, I agree with you they, they expanded on that sound and um I think a Cure concert should be taken in alone. It's very introspective. <laughs> it's very yeah, it's awesome. It's cool. Nothing wrong with that, um, dude. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I and what a great conversation to have with you. And and it's it's really cool to get to talk to you. I've been listening to you for a while, and it's fun to put a, a face to the music. Awesome. So, um, and congratulations on the new work. I can't. I I'm so happy about it, and um, I'm I can't wait for people to hear it. Me too, man. Thanks for listening, and thanks for having me on. And- yeah. Of course. Yeah. And, and come back on the show, will you? Yeah, totally, man. Good chat. I like that guy. Michael Desmond of Local Nomad. Go to localnomadmusic.com and uh, check out the new Young Vampires EP. It's one of my favorite things. It's so refreshing, inventive, and uh, utterly infectious. So fun to chat with Michael, and hopefully you'll see Local Nomad play live sometime soon. Uh, Go to my website, alexgreenonline.com, and uh, if you feel like you're up for it, order my new book, Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight. Uh, Go to your local indie bookseller and do it through them, actually. That's a better way to go. Support those characters. Like I was saying uh, at the beginning of the show, they need your help. We need bookstores to be existing on this planet. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, leave us a rating, and tell all your friends, and then uh, and then do it again. We would appreciate it very much. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Who do you want on the show? Let me know. I'll track them down. Who should I bring back? Let me know. And I will uh, retrack them down. <laughs> Drop me a line and uh, let me know what you want to hear, and I will try to make that happen for you. Thank you, as always, for your continued listenership of Stereo Embers, the podcast. It means the world to us. We're very, very grateful. Let's close the show with another new song from the Young Vampires EP by Local Nomad. This is a track called Gates. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast, only on Bombshell Radio. Got a hips to the skies, blackout blue lights, New York on fire. When that sun comes up, would you pick me up? Would you take me home? Can't be alone. Gates, I've been trying so hard to get through 28. Never knew before I met you. So I had to get you No one knows you like I know you Cause no one knows you like I know you Baby, sink or swim I'm a fight to win Been an underdog But we keep it analog And if we say goodbye Just for a little while I'll 
Get you, no one knows you like I know. 